Right, good morning. Good morning, everyone. I'll just wait for the uh, stragglers to settle down. <laughs> oh, man. Right, it is, it is so great to be here this morning. Isn't it great to be able to come together and worship God? It really is. Um, before I start, I, I just want to put people's minds at rest. Um, you, you may have noticed as you came in, there was, a, there was a sign on the door saying, this performance contains strong language. <laughs> it doesn't. Okay. Just in case anybody was worried I was going to come out with expletives. It's not, it's not going to happen. Um, right, this is our third week in a six-week series looking at the book of uh, Daniel. Now, we've entitled this series Citizens. Citizens, and it's, it's all about how Christians are called to live in the world in a way which reveals the beauty of their citizenship of heaven. Or as it says in the tagline, being secure citizens of heaven living as great citizens of earth. Now, Christians are only temporary citizens of this world, but Christians are permanent citizens of the world to come. And God calls us to to, to live as such, and today we're thinking about how to be uncompromising citizens uh, with courage, and we'll be looking at the events in Daniel chapter 3, but, but before we do, I'm, I'm not going to recap, simply because of time, the, the, the sermons which, which went the past two weeks. If you weren't here, I'd really encourage you to listen to them, because it's, it's, it's been fantastic, but I, I do want to set this chapter in its context. So it's, it's around 600 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Israel has been conquered by the mighty Babylonian Empire, and among, among all the captives are numerous Um, young boys from influential Jewish families who have been taken away from their homes and loved ones uh, in Jerusalem, and they've been transported to to Babylon over 700 miles away. And and some of them are there for life. And and amongst this group of youngsters uh, are are Daniel and his three friends, whose names are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these four guys stay loyal to God, despite the fact that they're living in a hostile pagan society, and because of their faithfulness to God, they're promoted to positions of power and and influence. And and, um, and that's within the king's government. And with with that in mind, um, uh, we'll read from uh, uh, chapter 3. Now, now we will be reading the whole chapter, but it's, it's quite a long chapter, so we'll be dividing it into two parts, and we'll be starting off with the first 15 verses which, if you don't have a Bible, they will be displayed on the screen. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed around, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, 
as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, or, or Babylonians, at that time, certain Babylonians came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who would deliver you out of my hands? Dear God in heaven, we pray that as we consider this chapter, that you will be with us. Lord, may the preaching of your word be filled with power. May your spirit be present. May you speak to our hearts. May you bring glory to your name. And may you transform our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we consider this passage, I'd like to start off with an illustration. I have in my hands a balloon. What gives this balloon shape? Apart from, apart from the, the, the shape that it's been designed into and the elasticity of the rubber, what, what, what shapes it? Absolutely. Here's one I prepared earlier. <laughs> this is shaped by air. Where is the air? It's inside it. What else can shape this? Water. Absolutely, yes. Water can shape it if it's inside it, but as well as what is inside it, what else can shape it? What's, what's, what's shaping it now? Pressure. pressure. Where is the pressure? Outside. It's on the outside. This balloon can be shaped permanently or temporarily by the air which is inside it and by the pressure which is outside it. Even if I am not pressing it, it is still having pressure put on it by air pressure which is outside and all around it. Now, we're like a balloon. Um, there are internal and external factors which shape every single one of us. Something which is inside us and something which is outside us. They influence our behavior, they influence our thoughts, they influence our language. <sighs> Why is it you and I think the way we think and act the way we act? And, and, and say the things we say. It's, it's because we've been shaped by things that are both inside us 
and things which are outside of us. There, there can only be these two factors, only what's inside and what's outside. There, there's no other possibilities as far as I can see. And, um, and we'll be looking at what shaped these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, what enabled them to remain faithful to God as uncompromising citizens of courage. And so something internal and something external factors. Now, um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to call the external factors, external pressures. And, and these first uh, 15 verses of Daniel, they, they tell us what these external pressures were which were at play on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego during the events of, of uh, Daniel chapter 3. And, and, and there were many of them. And as, as, we, as, we consider, as we consider them, it's important to bear in mind that these external pressures were, 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 were real on, on these guys. We're, we're reading these events in the page of a book. These three men were living them. They did not know the outcome. And these pressures were all around them. They were real, they were intense, they were relentless, they were coming from all directions. These three young men had no idea in Daniel chapter 3 whether they were going to live or die. If we're familiar with the Bible, we know how this story ends. These guys did not. And, and as well as that, um, I'm, I'm going to list these, these pressures. These pressures were not coming one at a time. They were, they were not like the boxers uh, Muhammad Ali and, and Mike Tyson and Lennox Lewis and Anthony Joshua politely lining up one after, one after another to pummel them in the boxing ring. It was all these pressures coming on and attacking them at once. To face these four boxers one after another would be bad enough but to face all four of these boxers at the same time, that is awful pressure. So bear, bear that in mind as we, as we go through this. Now, um, there, there are eight types of, of external pressures and, that these three guys faced, and, and I've, I've, I've managed to shoehorn all of them into the beginning with a letter P. <laughs> um, these will be coming thick and fast, some of them. So the first one is the pressure of power and personality. The, the, the chapter starts off, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now, the, the, the author, if you've been following us through this journey of, of, of the book of Daniel, the author's already told us 55 times, 55 times in chapters 1 and 2, that this guy was a king. As well as mentioning the fact that he ruled over kingdoms, plural, and over palaces, the author is repeating this because it's important and he does not want us to lose sight of this. Nebuchadnezzar is a guy who had absolute power. And in both chapters 1 and 2, we read about people whose lives were at stake, people of power and influence and authority, whose lives were at stake simply for not pleasing him. His power was, it was total, it was unquestionable and it was unchallengeable. Not only that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was uh, a guy who had a dominant and controlling personality. We, we already saw in chapter 2 last week how stubborn he was, refusing to back down when, I, when outnumbered. He was, he was told by a group of wise men that he was being ludicrous for expecting them to be able to read his mind and tell him what he dreamed during the night before. He was a headstrong man. Have you ever known someone whose, whose personality and presence simply, simply dominate 
a, a room. Now, if, if you couple that sort of personality with absolute power, what you have is frightening. And in, in our present chapter, um, chap- chapter 3, we're told that this, this, this maniac of a king set up this massive image of gold 60 cubits high. Now, that's, that's 90 feet, which for, for those of you who are interested in such things, it's, it's about half the height of Nelson's column. And it, it, it wasn't fashioned overnight, the statue. It, it, required, uh, it required artists and carpenters and goldsmiths to, to design and build it. It also required uh, people and animals and vehicles to move it and to put it into place. This statue wasn't made on a whim. Uh, and given, given the cost involved, um, it wasn't made to be bowed down to just once. It was, it was a, a, a deliberate, thought out, and organized long-term project. So when Nebuchadnezzar found out that these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had not bowed the knee, he called them to speak with him face to face. And, and we, we're, we're told in, in chapter, one, uh, ch- chapter 3 that he did this in a furious rage. That's in verses 13 and 14. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't a coward. He wasn't like one of those, those monarchs who ruled behind strong men. He was a strong man. He was a dominant man with a dominant personality, and it was his plan to intimidate these guys into doing what he said. He was not somebody to be messed with. Have you, have you ever known? Have you ever known somebody like that? Someone with such a dominant personality that you feel a pressure to do what they say. Um, I, I have. Um, when, when I was about um, seven or eight years old, one day after school, I went, I went to a graveyard um, near to my school um, with, with some, of my, some of my classmates. And, and uh, one of these classmates was, was, was very dominant. He was, he was quite a bully, in fact. And, and, and what he did when we, we got there, he, he took out this packet of cigarettes and he told every single one of us to take a cigarette and to smoke it. And that included me. Um, I'd been brought up to believe that it was wrong to smoke, and yet at that present time, I felt this immense external pressure from this, this kid with this dominant, bullying personality to do what he said, even though I knew it was wrong. And I'm sure every single one of us has known someone like this. And I will come back to that story, but I'm going to leave it there just for the time being. There was also the presence, uh, sorry, the pressure of prominence. Now, now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they had been in Babylon for a very long time, and they, they were now probably in their 20s or their 30s. And during the time they'd been there, they'd, they'd been obedient to the king, and they'd been obedient to God, and they had been blessed with positions of influence and, res- and, and responsibility. And they'd been faithfully serving in Babylon as godly citizens as, as obedient citizens, and they, they got to where they were by being loyal to the king. And now, all of a sudden, they might lose it all. Simply for the sake of refusing to bow down to this huge statue which the king had erected. They had made it to the top of the career ladder, but now they find themselves in the position where obeying the king would mean sinning against God. But disobeying the king is going to cost them everything. Don't lose sight of this pressure. Losing the prestige, the prominence that you've got as a result of wanting to be faithful to God. 
There was also peer pressure. I'm sure you expected this one. There's peer pressure. Now, verse 3 tells us that there were all of these different types of officials, the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the officials from, from all over uh, the, the empire of, 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 of Babylon, and they'd been gathered together at the king's command. Now, ba- Babylon was a huge empire in the Middle East, covering an area of probably over a, a million square kilometers. And there would have been hundreds, if not thousands, of, of official people here, and only these three men, only these three men refused to bow, and they would have stood out like a sore thumb. Uh, can, can I have a show of hands? How many of us have experienced peer pressure in our lives? That's pretty much everybody. How many of us have, have, have given in to it at least once? Peer pressure is, is incredibly powerful. When, when I was 17, um, and I was doing my A-levels, I was, I was in an assembly uh, where all of us sixth formers were asked if, if any of us had, had read the book Pilgrim's Progress, which, for, for those of you who don't know, is, is, a, is a very famous Christian novel. And, and I had read it. But I decided to keep my hand down and look around and wait for somebody else to put their hand up first so that I didn't stand out as the only Christian. No other hands went up. My hand stayed down because of the pressure of standing out amongst all of my peers. That being one person to take a stand in a large group can be frightening enough. However, there there was another kind of peer pressure which these guys... um, Experience, which was less to do, le- less to do with numbers. Um, le- let me read to you from uh, the book of 2 Kings 24, um, verses 10 and 14. It says, At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. 10,000 Israelite captives. 10,000. And many of those would have been like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and appointed to positions of office. And, and in Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, we're, we're told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel weren't the only guys who were brought into the king's service. Where were all the other Israelites? Where were they? Why was it just these three? All the others were bowing down to the idol. I won't read it because it's quite a long number of verses, but in in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 5 to 17. I would encourage you, if you're taking notes, to to have a look at this later. 2 Kings 17, 5 to 17. We're told that the Israelites had been worshipping other gods and, and rejecting God's law for generations. The Israelite people, the people of God, the very people you would expect to take a stand with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were bowing down like everyone else because they had been compromising for years. How discouraging. How discouraging it must have been 
to these three young friends that the people they should have relied on to take a stand with them had so completely compromised themselves. Standing out on your own is tough enough, but when somebody says, but so-and-so is doing it, and they're a Christian just like you, how tough, how tough that is. There's also the pressure to pretend. To bow down to this idol, but to say in their hearts, God will know that I'm not really bowing down in my heart. How, how easy it would have been for these three guys to rationalize it and to say, you know what, my conscience is going to convict me for a short while. But I'll repent of my compromise and God will forgive me and I can then carry on serving both king and God. And in a month or a year, all of this would have been forgotten. Pressure to pretend. There's also the pressure of their own perceptions. Nah, that, that might not make sense, but like I said, I shoehorned all of my points into, into beginning with P. What, what I mean by this is, is, is the, the allure of, of their senses. Everything that they're seeing and hearing during this experience. Now, we're, we're told four times in, in this chapter that everyone was to bow down at the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. What's being described here? This is an orchestra. It wasn't just a cacophony of sound like you get in King's Kids where everybody's banging it and it's all out of tune. This was a musical orchestra. This is a, a, like, like the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra or something like that. And it wasn't just to tell everybody when to bow down. If Nebuchadnezzar just wanted everybody to bow down at the same time, and that was the only purpose, he would have used the herald who gave the instructions in, in verse 4. The orchestra was in order to stir up feelings in them. Its purpose was to affect the hearers and to promote an emotional response in them. And it wasn't just what they were hearing, it was also what they were seeing. This orchestra would have been splendid. They would have looked around and they would have seen hundreds or thousands of, of officials in, in their clothes of, of, of splendor and office bowing down at the same time. They would have seen this massive golden statue, probably made of gold and probably gleaming in the sun, and they would have seen the splendor and the power of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. Now, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with beautiful sights or stirring music. But let's, let's not fool ourselves. The wonder of what we can experience with our senses, can, can, it can also be its, its danger because our senses and the feelings they arouse within us can be so powerful. These three friends, they've been immersed for years in, in, in Babylonian culture, um, its literature, its entertainment, its education, its fashion, and its sophistication. And now they are being bombarded with sights and sounds and experiences designed to manipulate them into compromise. To manipulate them into compromise. There's also persistent pressure that these three guys experienced. They did not just have to take a stand once. They had to take a stand twice. 
in verses 13 to 16, we read that they're hauled before the king who gives them a second chance to bow the knee and avoid being burned alive. Now, it was a second chance from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. From their perspective, it was a second temptation to compromise. They were being given what seemed like a way out of their situation, a way to make amends. External pressures to compromise don't just come to the Christian occasionally. They can be persistent. They are persistent. They're constant. The world, our sinful nature, the devil, they are relentless enemies who will not give up on trying to lead the people of God into compromise. There's also the, the, the pressure of persecution. By this, I'm talking about the threat of being burned alive. They're threatened with an excruciatingly painful death. Bow or be burned. That is the only choice they're being given. And, and um, you, you may or may not know this, but Nebuchadnezzar had a reputation for his brutality. Um, and the Israelites knew that he had already burned people to death. Um, if you're taking notes again, um, Jeremiah 29, verse 22. Jeremiah 29, verse 22, tells us of two men that, quote, Nebuchadnezzar roasted in the fire. He had done this already. It was not an empty threat, and these three guys, they would have known it. We're very fortunate in the 21st century Western world that we don't expect physical suffering, physical persecution, and martyrdom because of our Christian faith. However, let, let's, let's not be complacent, friends. We're living in a post-Christian society. And these three guys, they had been quietly serving God and the king for years before this threat came. It came out of nowhere. Would you compromise if your life was at risk? Would I? I, I don't, I honestly don't know. I don't. There's also the pressure of the passage of time. Now, all of the other pressures that we've talked about, they can be compared to a sharp pin coming and threatening to burst a balloon. I've not got a pin in my hand. Okay, it's all right. <laughs> but there's, 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 a, there's another pressure which is, which, is, which is unseen and maybe not even noticeable. And that's the pressure of the passage of time. Now, this balloon, if I don't burst it with a pin, but I lift it, leave it here on the stage, what is it going to look like in a month or in a year? What's going to happen to it? It's going gonna, it's gonna to shrivel up. Not because of anything which anybody has done to it, but simply because of the passage of time. Now, we, we know when the events in... We know when the events in chapters 1 and 2 of Daniel happen because, because the, the, the writer tells us. Um, they, they, they happen about um, 
in, in the first two years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. But what, what, about, what about chapter three? Well, the, the passage does not tell us. It simply starts off, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now, while I was preparing for, uh, for, for today, I did quite a bit of research to, to, to try and pin down exactly when these events took place. And um, different scholars have different opinions. So I, I, one I came across said five years, another said eight years, another said nine years, another said 18 years. Now, the experts disagree because the experts don't know. And, and I, I think... I think that's the point. The writer of Daniel is deliberately leaving out when these events took place. Time passes for these three guys. Their lives are the same day by day, week by week, year by year. They're still captives in Babylon, along with the rest of the people of God. There's no sign of God delivering them. Time passes, nobody notices it, and nothing is changing. And for many years, these three friends would have seen godlessness, pride, violence, immorality, and idol worship in Babylon, and it could have worn them down. And time can do this to Christians, friends. Many, many Christians, when they're first saved, they're, they're full of, of a passion for God. They, they want to pray. They want to read the scriptures. Not out of a duty, but because they want to encounter the God who loved them and saved them. They're filled with determination. They fight against indwelling sin. They aim to live lives that point to Jesus and they are, are full of, of uncontained enthusiasm to tell their friends and family about what Jesus Christ has done for them. Then something happens. Time passes. And all they see is, is, is the world around them and they forget that they're also citizens of heaven and the world becomes attractive again. Their passion for God grows cold. And before they know it, there are wasted months of compromise, a lukewarm love for God, and a mediocre faith. You can have the most intense bonfire pile on all the wood. It's a big blaze. But if you leave it untended, the flames will eventually burn low. That's the risk. That's the unseen pressure which can bring Christians into compromise. And the silent pressure of the passage of time, it pressed hard on these three friends. Time passed, they were still captives, an ungodly world surrounded them on all sides, and everyday life was the same, far away from their home in the promised land. Heaven was silent, and the Israelites seemed abandoned by God. And they could have think, thought to themselves, why not compromise? Why not bow to the idol? Nothing's changed, everything will stay the same, whether I bow or whether I stand. Fr friends, where, where does this land in your life right now? Where does it land in your life right now? All of these pressures. You're a Christian here this morning. And ask yourself this question, what's caused you What's caused you to compromise your faith and your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, either now or in the past? What pressure 
Which of these pressures are you most vulnerable to? That you need to guard your heart against or else you may cave in. Perhaps there's a difference for you between how you live before others and how you live in private. Perhaps you you stand up against compromise when you're with other people, but you compromise when no one else is looking. Maybe you feel you lack the courage or the faith to take a stand as an uncompromising citizen in this world. Maybe you're easily influenced by, by strong personalities or when you're with a certain group of friends. Or perhaps time has passed and your love for Jesus has grown cold. But most importantly, what are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? How will you stand now when you're experiencing all of these pressures to bow down? As as we've already seen, we're not just shaped by what's outside of us, we're also shaped by what's inside us, the air which which is in that balloon. Um, if we're to be shaped by what is on the inside the f- what is on the inside has to be stronger than what is on the outside it has to be and so we, we're going to be looking now very briefly at the internal power which was in the lives of these three guys, which enabled them to stand against all the external pressures that they're, they're experiencing. And we're going we're to read the rest of the chapter, beginning from verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you, that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace... He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. I'm going to leave it there. These three friends didn't give in to the external pressures to compromise because they had an internal power which had an even greater influence upon them. Now, this internal power was the power of God's presence. They were empowered by God in their lives 
Um, in, in verse 25, we, we learn from Nebuchadnezzar that there was a fourth person in the fire with them who he, he describes as like a son of the gods. Now, now throughout church history, Bible scholars, many Bible scholars have believed that this was an appearance of the Son of God 600 years before he became a man and was born as a baby in Bethlehem. God was present in the fire with them. He was, he was present in the fire with them because he had been present with them before they were thrown in. Can I take you back to my, my seven-year-old self in the graveyard with my classmates and the cigarettes? I'm, 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 I'm guessing you probably want to know what I did. Did I compromise, given this external pressure? Well, no, no, I didn't. Do you want to know why? <laughs> it's because I was convinced that my mum could see me, and she would know. Gen gen genuinely, that's what I believe. My, my theology at that young age may have been quite dodgy. <laughs> but this, this internal conviction that my mum was all-knowing <laughs> was, was strong in my heart. I, I, I believe she saw me, and, and I loved her, and I wanted to please her. Now, had I had a similar conviction like that when I was 18, and I was, uh, we were asked about Pilgrim's Progress, had I had that similar conviction about the presence of God in my heart, my hand would have shot up, and I would have been unashamed to be known as the only person there who had read that book and probably was a Christian. When two forces are pressing against each other. It's a stronger one which, which wins. And, and, and in John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, we're told, he who is in you is stronger than he who is in the world. That's why these three friends were able to stand up and be counted. And Jesus showed up in the burning, fiery furnace because he was already present in their everyday lives well before the flames came. Friends, don't wait until trials come to seek the presence of God in your lives, to seek his power. Right now, ask to have his powerful presence in your heart so that you can take a courageous stand against every external pressure to compromise. Now, how can, how can we have this power of God presence in our, present in our hearts? His presence with us why was it God was with these three men? Very quickly, first of all, they, they, they saw God's presence persistently. This didn't happen in a vacuum, their ability to stand. It didn't happen in a vacuum. These guys had been faithfully living for God for years, at least since the events of, of Daniel chapter 1, when they were first brought to Babylon as teenagers. In, in chapter 1, we see their unwillingness to compromise over something much smaller than this. They didn't compromise over food in chapter 1, and therefore they were able to resist compromise either over idol worship in chapter 3. They were faithful in little things. Therefore, they were able to be faithful in big things. Now, many Christians today say they're willing to die for Christ, but they're not willing to live for him now. 
don't, don't, don't be deceived. Friends, if you're compromising in the little things now while life is easy, don't be surprised if you bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's idol when you're threatened with the flames. Let's follow the example of these three men by persisting in staying close to God in the small everyday things of life right now. They also found uh, God's presence in partnership. And, and Philip did speak about this last week, so I'm going to be brief. These, these three friends, whenever they're mentioned in the Bible, they're always mentioned together. You never have Shadrach or Meshach or, or Abednego being mentioned on their own. It's always all three of them. God has called us as Christians into community, into fellowship with other Christians to be part of a church because he wishes to strengthen us and to protect us. In, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12, we're, we're told, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and the threefold cord is not easily broken. There is strength and there is courage to be found in numbers. That's why we as a church don't just encourage people to come along on Sundays, but to be Christians with our brothers and sisters right throughout the week. That's why we have life groups. They also knew God's presence through prayer. These three guys were praying believers. Um, in, in, in chapter 2, the previous chapter, verse 17, Daniel asked them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. And, and I'd like to suggest that in, in our present chapter, chapter 3, verse 17, what they say there wasn't just a statement of intent. It was a, an arrow prayer directed to God in the heat of the moment when they said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. These three friends are just like Daniel in his uncompromising walk with God. Um, we're told in, in Daniel chapter 6 verse 3, um, sorry, sorry, Daniel chapter 6, that, that, that Daniel prayed three times a day. These three friends were filled with courage and uncompromising hearts like Daniel because they were believers who prayed like Daniel. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a 20th century preacher, he said, what prayer does, as it were, is to, is to fill the lungs of the soul with the oxygen of the Holy Spirit and his power. If you want to stand on your feet and not falter, fill yourself with the life of God. God's presence also gave them perspective. In verses 16 and 17, we're told, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Notice the contrast. O Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve. These guys had a right perspective. They didn't call him, O glorious king, or O mighty Nebuchadnezzar. They called him by his name. Despite all of his earthly glory and power, they saw that he was just a man and his power was nothing compared with the infinite power of Almighty God. They saw that they were safe and that even if they were burned to death, God would deliver them out of the king's hands. Their perspective wasn't just who Nebuchadnezzar was in relation to God. Their perspective saw beyond the flames and to God's eternal deliverance of their souls. Lastly, 
God's presence empowered their participation. Sorry, not lastly, beg your pardon. Um, as, as we've already seen, these three friends had been faithful, faithfully serving God for years. Um, they were not placard-wielding Christians who were opposed to everything and stood for nothing. They willingly contributed to the society in which they found themselves. Chapter 1, verse 6 tells us that these guys are actually named uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were their Hebrew names, their real names. But in chapter 3, they're called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which were the Babylonian names they were given when they were taken captive. Why are they called by their Babylonian names? It's because they were willing to be part of the society in which they found themselves. And they did not want to stand out from the prevailing culture without a good reason. There is nothing in the Bible forbidding people from having foreign names, from having the name of uh, uh, given to you by an, an, an unbelieving society. Nothing. And so they did not make an issue of it. And there's nothing in the Bible forbidding them from being civil servants to an unbelieving government. And so they served faithfully and consistently. What the Old Testament forbade is idol worship. And so these three friends uh, took a stand on this point, but only on this point. Let's, let's pick our fights wisely, friends. Let's be good citizens of heaven by taking a stand and refusing to compromise if it would mean disobeying God. But in everything else, let's be people who serve, who live, and who love as the best citizens on earth we can possibly be to show the beauty of Jesus Christ to an unbelieving world. Now, also note very briefly how respectful they were in their response to the king. In verse six, verses 16 to 18, they were firm in their refusal to bow. But they were never rude. Never rude. Now, remember I said they called him Nebuchadnezzar, not O Glorious King. But they call him by his name, Nebuchadnezzar, just once to remind themselves he was just a man. But they call him O King twice in verses, 13, in verses 16 to 18 to show him the respect he was entitled to because of his position. And that was despite the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was clearly in the wrong. Just because he was treating them unjustly did not mean they responded with rudeness or disrespect. They wanted their faith to be faultless before unbelievers and not bring dishonor to God through their words while trying to take a stand. And I, I wonder if, 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 if the Apostle Peter had this event in mind when he wrote in 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's how we should be uncompromising citizens. Lastly, God's presence ensures protection. The fires came for these three men when they were tied up by their hands and feet and thrown into the burning fiery furnace. I'd, I'd like to suggest that the arrow prayer they offered up in verse 17, it, it wasn't actually answered by God. They'd asked God in verse 17 to deliver them from the burning fiery furnace. God didn't. What God did do was he delivered them in the burning fiery furnace. Pressure to compromise and persecution are inevitable in life. 
The question is, will we face it alone? These friends didn't because God was with them. Now, as, as I invite the band um, uh, back, I'd, I'd like us all to, to, to briefly notice uh, the, the remarkable things that happened in the furnace. Now, as, as we've already briefly mentioned, God was already in their hearts way before the events of chapter 3. What the furnace did was it revealed God to these three friends with a greater intimacy and clarity. And the furnace also revealed God to those who were unbelievers. The way we deal with suffering and persecution can be a massive testimony to others of the genuineness of our faith. And it can reveal God to them. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 that the genuineness of our faith, though much more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, is found to praise, glory and honour at the revealing of Jesus Christ. That's what happened in the burning fiery furnace. Their faith revealed Jesus Christ, not just figuratively, but literally. In order to be an encouragement to us and to everyone else in the preceding years who would read this story. Not only that, um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the furnace, not just unharmed, but set free. Only those who walk with Jesus can know the freedom and the protection he brings when they're in the fires of this life. Only Jesus can empower us to live as uncompromising citizens with courage when facing the pressures of this life. Jesus will reveal himself to us in the flames if we do not compromise on our faith. And when he does, he will also liberate us. Do you know him? Do you? Have you, have you encountered this man? Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. Whatever suffering, whatever persecution we might go through in this life, bear this in mind, Jesus went through more and he's willing to be with us in the flames of this life. When he hung on the cross, he bore the flames of hell to rescue us from them. Do you know him? Do you? Come and seek him. Come and seek him for yourselves. He'll bring healing He'll bring forgiveness. He'll give courage to stand. He'll bring deliverance. He'll bring liberty. He will burn away the ropes that hold you. And he'll fill you with the power and the courage to stand as uncompromising Christians. If you've compromised, if you're living a compromised life now, oh, he's willing to forgive you, friends. He's willing to forgive you. Just confess to him. Tell him. And he'll have mercy. And he'll fill you with the life of God. And he'll strengthen you if you ask him for his Holy Spirit to come into your hearts, to come into your lives. He'll enable you to be uncompromising Christians in this hostile world and live in such a way which brings glory to him and testifies to the world 
But God Almighty is real and reveals Jesus Christ in your lives to those unbelieving people that you rub shoulders with day in, day out. If at the end you uh, want to come and seek prayer, Patrick and I will be at the front. Whether you're a Christian who's compromised or somebody who's never known Christ, he's willing to empower you to stand. <laughs>